Welcome to the Couples Therapy Podcast, where a couple with a couple of kids try to entertain you as often as we can. I'm Will, uh, and conspicuous in her absence is Deanna. Uh, my wife is on a my wife is on a business trip uh, somewhere else, and uh, she will not be here for the remainder of the week. And this may or may not mark the beginning. Of uh, the last several episodes of the several last couple episodes of the Lent season that may or may not have her. Um, she'll be back in time to do a couple more. But as we mentioned in the podcast episode about um, what was that one about? Prayer. Uh, we're moving. So we're moving at the end of next week. Or actually, we're moving. Oh, God. We're moving a week from tomorrow. Um, so, yeah, there might not be any more of these. <laughs> we are hoping to be uh, set up Saturday before uh, Easter uh, in the new house to do one more on, and kind of record an episode from the new living space um, to finish this thing off as this whole new thing we're doing um, happens. So yeah, stay tuned for that. But uh, I just kind of wanted to... I don't know. I guess maybe get some things off of my chest or keep going since we, we did talk about doing this for the entirety of Lent. And just because Deanna is out of town does not mean that I can't still uh, put something out there. Um, I think you might have noticed a little bit of disjointedness, or at least Deanna and I did, uh, in listening to the podcast on prayer. And part of that is due essentially to that was the first episode we really recorded where like we don't talk ahead of time about what we're going to talk about or what takes we're going to use on certain topics. So whenever we say things on here, it actually is the first time the other one's hearing it for the most time, most part. Um, and we've just conveniently kind of agreed on pretty much everything <laughs> and for the most part understood where each other were coming from on all of these and in that episode we just were not clicking for some reason um and i was being guarded to be honest um because in in full disclosure my wife is um so much more secure in her spirituality than I am not in faith necessarily. Like I think we're both fairly strong in our faiths in our walks of faith, but like <clears throat> I am, I am not always the same in how I feel about things and the, the, the nature of things and the nature of God. And I just, I'm a little bit all over the place and scattered uh, as opposed to riding a straight line the most time. Um, and she's just so much more in tune to things. And when we were talking about prayer. It, I just couldn't quite get there because I have these weird feelings about prayer as I've gotten a little bit older um, and just seen things that happen in people's lives. You know, and so it's it's hard for me to talk about healing and answered prayers and 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 things like that when I've seen so much from happen to people that 
believe or good people or bad people. It doesn't matter. I mean, things that happen. So, like, for instance, my grandmother, it's a my mom's mom, but she was diagnosed with cancer, and she, as I am told, was not treated for it. Like, she was like, I'm not going to take medication for it. I'm just going to pray. And took a year off from, like, everything. Like, she didn't go hardly anywhere but church, and she just prayed about her cancer. Uh, and one day walked out on the front porch in prayer, <clears throat> caught up in the spirit, throws her hands up in the air, falls over backwards like a tree falling in the woods, slams into the ground, goes to the hospital, cancer's gone. So, you know, like, you see that kind of stuff, and that changes the way you look at things. And when you're born into a family with that story, you're like, wow, that's amazing, the power of prayer. And the, and the power of prayer is undeniable. I won't say that or anything against that. <clears throat> the problem is many people have cancer and they pray about it and they die. And that is the thing. So <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. And those kinds of ideas just were flooding through my mind when we talked about prayer uh, the other day. And Deanna was being much more positive than I could muster, you know, and we just were not synced up. And <clears throat> so if that was weird to hear or something seemed off, that's what it was. I'm just... I'm not always um, positive and rosy and pleasant, and my sweet, lovely wife usually is. It's one of the fantastic things about her to help me not always be so uh, morose. <clears throat> but it's just interesting. Like we we talked about prayer in this church class that we're going to, um, and. We, we started talking about prayer and praying supernaturally um, as a topic one week. And not supernaturally, like, give me the power to fly, but, like, praying bigger for bigger things. And uh, For instance, one guy pointed out how you know, he used to pray for his daughter who had this degenerative disease. To, and he, he would pray for her to feel better and to have more comfort. And then he realized that that was a very or he, he decided that that was a very um, short-sighted and even somewhat selfish uh, prayer and began praying for advancements in the medical research for a cure for his daughter's disease. Um, and so he, he removed himself and like his personal needs from the prayer and started praying for something bigger. And, 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 and actually... Uh, there has been progress in that in that disease. I forget what it is. But, you know, it was just a very interesting thing. Um, and what I like about it is instead of saying, like, my family is experiencing this, fix it. They prayed. My family has become aware of the prevalence of a problem. Uh, don't fix her, but remove the problem from the world. Uh, and that's awesome. You know, and I like that. But then we start talking in the class about specifics that the class could pray for, things that maybe the class could hope to see in in the world. And the leader of the class starts listing off various options of things to, to pray for. And my, my heart jumped into my throat. And I thought over and over again, do not say racism. Do not say racism. But of course he did. He said racism and reconciliation. Uh, and yes, those are big things to pray for. Um, 
I'm not saying people shouldn't, but there's two problems with that. First, thing first, first, I hate when people ask for reconciliation of race relations. To reconcile is to restore friendly relations. America never had friendly racial relations to start. So there's no reconciliation. It's not a fence that we're mending. It's something that has to be built up from the beginning. Racism and slavery were one-sided issues. We have nothing to bring to the table for reconciliation. It, reconciliation implies mutual fault. Reconciliation is a misnomer. Second, it's so vacuous to me to think that in 2018, some 500 plus years after the start of slavery, that the little church that we go to, as actually it's not little, but regardless, that this little church is going to have the swagger to pray away racism in a town of any size. I mean, do you know why that's ridiculous? It, it blindly assumes that for the past 500 plus years, we haven't been praying for that. What do you think we've been praying for? And so like, racism has been prayed about since the dawn of racism, but racism survives. The fact that loving Christian good people think that racism is just a group prayer away from extinction shows a complete lack of perspective. It's not to say that prayers about racism aren't effective, but if they are, it would seem to indicate if they do anything, it's incremental. Uh, it's, it's people have to change themselves. That's the solution. Like, you can't pray to end racism. You have to pray to remove all of that from within yourself. That's the issue. You can't pray away someone else's initial reaction to seeing my black skin. Those prejudices range from minor to major, and they're the fabric of your being. They're trained in your synapses. You have to do work yourself to change them. You can't be woke one day. Sorry, this is me being negative again, but this is what I'm talking about. Like we, we like to talk about things like they're very, very simple or that um, just give it to God, you know? But like some things are either, they're not too big for God, but they're obviously too big for his followers. Like, and I know that's an uncomfortable sentence, but if there are things in the world that are happening around you that you know shouldn't be, and you're praying about them, and they persist. It's not God's fault. It's ours. And so we can sit around and talk about it, but if we're not going to do things, then the words don't matter. And that was where my cynical brain was throughout the, the prayer part, is prayer is great until you realize that we're the hands and the feet. And we're not, if we're not going to do anything, then thoughts and prayers are meaningless in every situation, not just the ones that that phrase makes you think about. But that is not why I wanted to record a podcast today. So consider that rant over. Uh, although I cannot promise there won't be another. What I wanted to talk more about today was something we brought up in the Culture War episode uh, about the woman at the well. Uh, and being the first person that Jesus exposed his messiahship to. Um, because I've heard that story a lot of times. I'm sure a lot of you have heard that story. And I don't know that I'm going to say it right. But I just had an interesting take on it. So I thought I would share that with you. So that story comes from John chapter 4, 
And yes, I'm about to read a Bible verse to you. Uh, but it's John chapter 4. Uh, and starting at verse 1, Jesus realized that the Pharisees were keeping count of the baptisms that he and John performed, although his disciples, not Jesus, did the actual baptizing. They'd posted the score that Jesus was ahead, turning him and John into rivals in the eyes of the people. So Jesus left the Judean countryside and went back to Galilee. I'm going to guess this is the message version from the lingo. To get there, he had to pass through Samaria. He came to Sychar, a Samaritan village that bordered the fields Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was still there. Remember that. It's important. Jesus, worn out from the trip, sat down by the well. It was noon. A woman, a Samaritan, came to draw water. Jesus said, would you give me a drink of water? His disciples had gone to the village to buy food for lunch. The Samaritan woman, taken aback, asked, How come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Because Jews in those days wouldn't be caught dead talking to Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink, and I'd give you fresh living water. The woman said, Sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with, and this well is deep. How are you going to get this living water? Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well and drank from it? He and his sons and livestock and passed it down to us? Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water from this well will get thirsty again and again. Anyone who drinks the water that I give will never thirst, not ever. The water I give will be an artesian spring within, gushing fountains of endless life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so I won't ever get thirsty. Drink more water. Won't we'll ever have to come back to this well again. Or you might die. Now this story is pretty well known. And it, uh, it begins with this seemingly innocuous exchange that I just read to you. And then it carries on into this whole deal that we'll get into. And ultimately results in Jesus saying he's the Messiah for the first time. And so since it ends in such a big deal um it's easy to overlook and undervalue what happened leading up to this point but you have to understand that the bible talks about how not everything jesus did is written down and that if it were it would have filled so many books so when something is written down at least in my opinion you have to take it very seriously and each and every word of that very seriously because somebody for some reason thought this was worth writing down and was telling you a story. Not just telling you the story that happened, but telling you a story. Like, it's relevant to me that this is in John and it's not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So what's going on here? See, first off, from the time, for the time period, in this part of the world, this lady begins the story behind the eight ball twice over. She's uh, a woman. Sorry, ladies. And she's a Samaritan. So for context, imagine the last person you would ever get caught in public with. Because it would nuke your reputation. Or imagine the last person anyone that you respect would ever listen to. And that person would be this Samaritan woman. But this is the first person Jesus reveals his messianic identity to. Now there have been hints, whispers, and rumors where people have thought he was all kinds of things other than the Messiah. But he, Jesus, had not publicly claimed that identity for himself. But he does here, for the first time. 
and he chose her, the last person anyone from his own religious tradition would ever talk to, the last person anyone would listen to. Now, not only was this the first revelation, he told her when his disciples and closest friends weren't there. They'd gone into town to get food. So there's an interesting point here where if you decide to tell me that the story is being told because Jesus has approached someone that was societally well beneath him and he is showing grace uh, to the people around him, there weren't any people around him. He's doing this solo. And I've heard lots of sermons that, and lessons about this woman. Those who don't see this as a moment where Jesus radically addresses sexism, racism, and religiousism in a simple question, if you don't see that, I think you're missing something. And I, I recently saw this story described by a very popular minister as follows. If people are spiritually asleep, you have to shock them, startle them, scandalize them, if you want them to hear what you have to say. Jesus was especially good at this. When he wants to teach us something about worship, he uses a whore. Jesus is bone-weary from the journey, hot, sweaty, thirsty, and he decides, yes, even now, just now, I will seek someone to worship God, a harlot, a Samaritan adulteress. I will show my disciples the worship that my father seeks and how he seeks it in the midst of a real life from the least worthy. Yikes. Admittedly, this lady apparently was far from chaste, but a whore? The least worthy? <laughs> I mean, I, I get where they're coming from, and but notice how only catching on to that subtle cultural detail invalidates the actual event. To read it that way is to say Jesus wanted to teach a lesson to people around him, as well as us, thousands of years later. So even though he was dead tired and thirsty from a long journey, he grabbed some random sexual deviant lady to make an example of, and as a result, make a witness out of and to us through. But that's not what happened. This was a candid conversation between two people that nobody else was privy to. I don't even know how John got it written down. The disciples weren't even there for it to learn from it. He didn't use a whore for anything. He lovingly spoke with a human being, not about uncovering her hidden sin and shame, as theologians like to put it, not about promiscuity, and not as a ploy. He had a chat with a young lady about water. So let's talk about water. Water is a necessary component of survival. We're 70% water. The planet's 70 to 75% water. Nothing survives without water in one of its many forms. The Bible constantly uses water and its necessity as a metaphor, though it doesn't always do it with the same meaning and connotations. Most often, and within the story of the woman at the well, water is said to represent the word of God, or knowledge of God, or even the salvation of God. It's the life-giving essence of the divine. This is made clear when Jesus says, the water I give will be an artesian spring, gushing fountains of endless life, back in verse 14. Now, it's also important to note that going to get water from a well at this point in time was significantly less convenient than you walking over and turning on the sink. I know it's probably obvious, but this well just wasn't right outside or on her property. It was a central location for everyone to use. 
when you went, well, I don't know if it was central, but it was in a location for everyone to use. When you went to draw water, you needed it for potentially a multitude of purposes, and you might need to get quite a bit all at once. You don't want to waste your whole day going back and forth to the well. There's an entire process and method to this activity, because getting water was imperative. Now, in this story, however, Jesus asks the Samaritan woman to give him water. She came to the well with the sole purpose of getting water, but neither of them walk away with any water. In fact, the message translation says that she, in her confusion, left her water pot. Now, I like that it says in her confusion, because I, I, I think Eugene Peterson's letting us in on this little idea that finding life-altering truth can often occur without the accompaniment of certainty. But I'm probably getting ahead of myself. So what else is going on here? What's the author, John, who's not present for this event, by the way, what does he feel that this story, apparently about a degenerate, unclean, pagan, adulterous Samaritan woman, ultimately forgetting to draw water from a well, was worth including? What are we to gather from this moment? I think within the many layers of the story lies a metaphor for learning to distinguish religion, tradition, and perhaps even portions of the scriptures themselves, or at least our interpretations of them, from who and what God is. The story says the Samaritan village bordered the field that Jacob gave his son Joseph, and that Jacob's well was still there. I told you to remember that. Now, if no one in the story actually got any water from this well, why'd the storyteller tell us whose well it was? Well, who's Jacob? Well, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons of Father Abraham. And Father Abraham gets a lot of shines, and for good reason, and... He also had a grandson, grandson named Jacob. He was the blessings bully. And that's where Israelites get their name. Jacob is Israel. His name was changed as the story goes after he wrestled with God. Now, if you think there's not a wealth of meaning and interpretation contained in the idea that this dude, Jacob, who's come to know of God from the one-on-one -on -one and conversational relationship that his grandpa had with God, further forged and solidified when his father Isaac was voluntarily offered up as a sacrifice to God by said grandpa, although he didn't have to actually do anything to him, still had to wrestle with the concept on his own in the wilderness before finding God and his own true identity. You're kidding yourself. And that's back to that whole uncertainty thing. But I digress yet again. Now, why is the well, being Jacob's well, important? The Israelites don't really have a universal accepted place of origin. They're, they were a wandering tribe from the beginning. They were not identified by geography or ethnicity, but by who their patriarch was and who their God is. The Israelite people come from Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. They come from the man who dug this well. The Samaritans come from Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob's grandsons. They also come from the man who drug, dug this well. See, their lineage is similar. Their God is the same, although that's somewhat debated. But their religious beliefs, their cultures, their practices have diverged widely by the time of this chance meeting in John. But Israel and Samaria are family. They're enemies, but they're family. The common ancestor and founder of whatever spiritual ideas that both of those groups were practicing at that time, however disparate they had become, dug that well. This water was for all of them. So what's a well? 
A well is an excavation or structure created in the ground by digging, driving, boring, or drilling to access groundwater. A well is how you obtain water. A well is not the source of water. It's an access point. Now, we already discussed how water is the word, knowledge, and salvation of God. So following the lines of this metaphor, how does one obtain knowledge of God or come to possess the word of God and as a result the message of salvation? How does one get water? Is not our religion and traditions in whatever shape or form, whether structured or specific or otherwise, how we come to know God? Is religion not our access point? I think so. I think religion is our well. But religion's not the water. So what's going on in this story? What point is the author attempting to get across? You're probably tired of me asking you that question. Now Jesus, the Messiah, Christ, Son of the living God, comes as a Samaritan woman, which you're supposed to read as hopelessly sinful pagan servant, and asks her for water. A symbol of spiritual sustenance, something that the prevailing culture at the time would suggest the Samaritan woman was incapable of providing. Now, she acknowledges this cultural context, points out that he, or at least people that look like him, or are from his neck of the woods, tend to express some kind of spiritual superiority over people like her. She asks him why a Jewish man would ask a Samaritan woman for anything, let alone something as important as water, knowing that the person they've asked to provide it to them has to be clean, and Samaritan women were not considered to be so. Now, Jesus doesn't respond by saying, you're right, got me, let me get the water from Jacob's well for you and me. He doesn't establish himself as better fit to provide her for water from this well. He offers her different water entirely. Water that doesn't come from a well that any man dug, but living water, the real thing. She asks, as if almost offended, if this Jesus man thinks he's greater than our father Jacob, our, is your access point to the divine life greater than Israel's himself? Now he says drinking from Jacob's well, while it will satisfy you for a time, will always leave you thirsting for more, but his water is endless. Now this is where things are going to get a little controversial. She asks him for this water, and he says, why don't you go, go get your husband? Where's your husband? When she says she doesn't have one, he points out that she's had five, and the guy she's currently seeing isn't her husband at all. This is all that exists in the story for people to justify calling her a whore, by the way, which is interesting. Because, well, it's just interesting. Let me trump myself with my own points. My point is that a lot of people interpret this exchange as further proof of how low on the totem pole this woman is. This idea that this woman, he's now calling her out on her secret sin. And in her shame, she tries to avoid dealing with what he's brought up, so she changes the subject. In her shame, she makes an attempt to get Jesus off topic by challenging him to answer a question about worship. Now, I think that's a bad interpretation. It's short-sighted to read the story that way. To say that she got embarrassed and changed the subject seems to suggest that a Samaritan woman looks at her status the same way a Jewish man would. That what he thought was bad about her would be something she agreed with. Now that may be, but 
I've never met a woman in my life that looks at herself the same way any man does, let alone adding in generations of racism and disgust expressed explicitly between the Jews and Samaritans leading up to this meeting. Now keep in mind, at this point in the conversation, this is just a regular old Jewish guy talking to her, not the Messiah. She expected him to shame her the second he opened his mouth. A Jewish man referencing some reason why a Samaritan woman is bad wouldn't have caught her off guard, wouldn't have phased her. It would have likely have been expected. She'd have been used to this treatment already, I think. So why would she run from it now? See, personally, I think when I read this text that we're reading about a very savvy woman. She was first immediately noticed that this man doesn't follow social norms because he's talking to her while she's alone. Where's your husband? Now, she's noticed he has special insight, even prophetic insight, as he knows her past. You've had five husbands. The guy you're with, not your husband at all. He understands the significance of Joseph and this well. And he clearly isn't talking about real water. He's talking about living water from somewhere else where I'll never be thirsty again. She didn't change the subject at all. She seems to have noticed that whoever she was talking to knows something she wants to know. And I don't think her sin caused her to shuffle and retreat. I think it brought her more into the conversation. She's realized Jesus is talking about something bigger. He's using water as a metaphor about something deeper. He's talking about something outside the physical. He's talking about worship and religion. She didn't change the subject. She dropped the metaphor. Jesus and the Samaritan woman start talking about religious practices explicitly. She compares the way Samaritans worship with how this Jewish man was accustomed to worship. She acknowledges that each of these groups believe that they know where and how to access God from their traditions and teachings of their religious leaders and writings. She asks Jesus where and what is proper. Should we worship at the mountain, as with the Samaritans' patriarchal practice, or the temple, the official Jewish center of worship? Now notice, he doesn't respond by saying one of these options is right and the other is wrong. Now, he does seem to acknowledge that one's more knowledgeable about God than the others, he, but he also seems to suggest they're incomplete vessels. Both are signs pointing to the thing, but neither of them is the thing itself. He says, the time is coming, it has in fact come, when what you're called will not matter, and where you go to worship will not matter. It's who you are and the way you live that count before God. True worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, it's easy to say that this simply means that the gap between Jew and Gentile is supposed to cease to exist, that a time is coming, in fact, it has now come. And I believe that to be true. But are we too quick to assume that we understand the dramatic changes that Jesus was getting at? This isn't the only time he's made the point of ending the us and them mentality, yet doesn't it feel like something we're still holding on pretty tightly to? If we're honest, don't we still use Christianity as an affiliation more than an assertion of what we believe, a status as opposed to a creed? Now maybe... Maybe as Christians with this text in our hands, which, which warns us becoming too comfortable with our access points to the divine, we tend to lose sight of the difference between the access point and the source. 
we proclaim to provide the eternal source of the living water, while in practice it can feel as though we doubled down and dug yet another well, found another access point that provided just enough comfort. To some extent, of course we did. That's human nature. The lists and rigors, they represent a transaction to be upheld by our concept of fairness, an if-then truth table. If I do this, this will happen. We want black and white do's and don'ts. However, these are concepts that the gospel seems to suggest Jesus didn't seem to care much about. See Mark 3 for doing good on the Sabbath. Matthew 19 for nuances on marriage and divorce. Matthew 22 for the two commandments that are both the greatest somehow. Yet, how many of us have boiled down what being a Christian means to a set of political views and posturing? How could you call yourself a Christian if? Questions. Or maybe tidy little to-do lists. How many weeks in a row did we attend church? Did I read the Bible app verse of the day? Did I say I'm blessed instead of I'm good? How many times have we driven past multitudes of homeless citizens in need of shelter locally just to drop our kids off in another country where they can build homes for Jesus that in reality get auctioned off to the highest bidder? How many times have we taken up an offering to upgrade the car of the single mother at the end of the pew, which is great, but looked right past that other one holding the sign at the end of the street? To be a little less dramatic, how about our social media interactions? How many simple conversations or posts turn into spewing hatred against people for their honest beliefs, cultural differences, sexual orientation, or even just slightly different interpretations of the same book we live by because such things threaten our comfort zones, routines, and traditions? How many times has the validity of our Christianity been challenged by a peer evaluating a split second of your behavior or your opinions? How much of being a Christian has become a list of what we do and they don't, or what we wouldn't do that they did? Sometimes it feels like that list has become so intricate and nuanced that the safest thing for a Christian to do is nothing at all. Well, maybe send out thoughts and prayers. Can we become so tied to our religion that we lose the importance of what religion points to? Can we be so committed to being called Christian that we fail to truly follow the way that Jesus proclaimed himself to be? Do we even know what the way is? Perhaps we tend to hedge our bets, stay close to our wells, so we can feel certain that some water is near instead of fully letting go and trusting in living water. Faith. Trust. We cement our identities in our wells and the names of those who dug them. We're Christians in name without realizing our deficiencies in spirit and truth. Can we become so focused on what we brought to the well, our reverence in approaching the well, our knowledge of who dug the well, instead of simply sharing and drinking the water? I mean, if it's for everyone, who are we so desperately defending it from? If grace is free, why does it seem like we want other people to earn it? Are we off too busy being Christian, being good little disciples that love can't reveal its message through and around its people, but instead must reveal its true identity to and through the least obvious, the least deserving among us, like a Samaritan woman? or a stuttering, exiled, adopted ex-Egyptian prince, a thief on a cross, the Roman centurion, the prodigal son, 
Women at the Tomb, Snoop Dogg, dope gospel album. You should go check that out. Why? Why do we think that people like this have to bring these messages for us? Does Jesus choose these types of people to make a point? Is he trying to say how powerful he is or how strong his ability to convince others is? Or perhaps is it something much more simple? Maybe he chooses these types of people because that's the only kind of people there are. Perhaps it's time we all consider deep down what we're truly focused on. Our well or the water. Perhaps we too, in our confusion, need to prayerfully leave some water pots behind. But what do I know? I'm just a guy with a podcast. And this podcast is over. So thank you for listening to the Couples Therapy Podcast with Will and D. Hit us up at CouplesTherapod.com if you feel so inclined. We love you.